Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host this afternoon. We're here to uh, mark the publication of a new book by Professor David Bernstein, Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform, which has just come out from the University of Chicago Press, co-published by the Cato Institute. This, uh, I should say, is the third in a series of books uh, that we have just published on uh, the progressive era and its implications for the law and the Constitution in particular. In fact, we have now four books that are directly on that subject, all of which are available outside uh, for your purchase. The first one uh, came out in 2006, which we published by Richard Epstein at the University of Chicago, now at NYU Law School, called How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution. And then just last year, we uh, published uh, Tim Sandifer's The Right to Earn a Living. Then in, uh, in January, we published uh, the uh, book by David Mayer at Capital Law School, Liberty of Contract, Rediscovering a Lost Constitutional Right. And today, we're going to be talking about David Bernstein's Rehabilitating Lochner. And so, without further ado, let's get right to that. Um, there's no Supreme Court decision in recent years uh, has <clears throat> so um, concerning economic liberty has been more emblematic uh, of the alleged errors of the old pre-New Deal court than Lochner v. New York, which was decided in 1905, upholding contractual freedom against the New York statute that limited the hours that bakers might work. The decision has been reviled by both liberals and conservatives as an egregious example of judicial malfeasance, indeed judicial activism, cited today most often for the prescient dissent of the sainted Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, whose ringing dissent including the, included the contention that the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's so social statics, and also contending that a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism and the organi organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. Doubtless the indefinite article saved him there, although the oath of office that Holmes took was not up to uphold a constitution, but rather to uphold this constitution and this U.S. Constitution mentions both property and contract, the very foundations of laissez-faire capitalism that would seem to settle the matter. Yet the story of Lochner is not over, and that's why we are here to mark this book, which examines the history and background of the case. David Bernstein argues that the decision has not been widely, has been widely misunderstood and unfairly maligned, that it was well-grounded in precedent, and that subsequent battles over segregation laws, sex discrimination, civil liberties, and more owe much to the limited government ideas of Lochner's proponents. So let me now introduce David. After that, we will have comments from our two guests from Georgetown Law Center, namely Mike Seidman, and uh, from Greg Maggs from the George Washington Law School. 
David Bernstein is the George Mason University Foundation Professor at the George Mason University Law School, where he has been teaching since 1995. He was a visiting professor at Georgetown and also at Michigan. He is a graduate of Brandeis University and the Yale Law School, where he was senior editor of the Yale Law Journal and a John M. Olin Fellow in Law, Economics, and Public Policy. He's the author of over 60 frequently cited scholarly articles, book chapters, and think tank studies that have appeared in the law reviews or law journals at Yale, Michigan, Northwestern, Texas, Georgetown, Vanderbilt, California, Iowa, North Carolina, and the Illinois Law Review plus the Law and Contemporary Problems Review. Uh, Professor Bernstein is the author of Rehabilitating Lochner, also of You Can't Say That, The Growing Threat to Civil Liberties from Anti-Discrimination Laws, which Cato published in 2003. He is the co-author of The New Wigmore, Expert Evidence, uh, published by Aspen Law and Business, the author of Only One Place of Redress, African Americans, Labor Regulations, and the Courts from Reconstruction to the New Deal, and the co-editor of Phantom Risk, Scientific Inference and the Law, which MIT published in 1993. He's a former chairperson of the Association of American Law Schools Evidence Section, and I should note that he is also an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. He teaches Products Liability, Evidence, Constitutional Law 1 and 2, and Scientific and Expert Evidence. He also blogs at the Volick Conspiracy. Please welcome David Bernstein. Thank you, Roger. So just to recap uh, the story, the basic story of Lochner for those who are unfamiliar with it or who have forgotten. So 1905, the Supreme Court invalidated a New York state law that limited the hours that bakery employees were allowed to work to 10 hours per day or 60 hours per week. The court said that this law was a violation of the right to liberty of contract, which was implicitly protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And as Roger noted, ever since uh, the case has come under a lot of criticism and in modern times is reviled by both left and right, by both liberals and conservatives. My book seeks to dispel a lot of the historical myths that have developed over the last century or so about Lochner and other liberty of contract cases. And I think a lot of these myths, as we'll see, were developed for overtly ideological or political reasons. And I want to replace this with a more accurate historical narrative. And I'm going to start with uh, two small mysteries, which I will address as my talk goes on. One mystery is that, as I just mentioned, conservatives tend to dislike Lochner at least as much as liberals do. And while it's not surprising that liberals wouldn't be big fans of Lochner, uh, it's a little odd that conservatives who tend to be in favor of free markets and economic liberty and whatnot would be so harshly opposed to a decision that protected the right to liberty of contract. So one question we're going to address is why so much conservative hostility to Lochner. The second mystery uh, is for those of you who have been following the litigation over the individual mandate uh, regarding Obamacare. If you've been following that litigation, you know that there have been two district court opinions, federal district court opinions, holding that Obamacare's individual mandate is unconstitutional as beyond Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. 
a lot of the criticism of those opinions, if you've been following blogs or op-ed pages or editorials, has suggested that these judges are in some way reviving Lochner. One very prominent legal writer even said that the, these judges are reviving the letter and spirit of Lochner, whatever precisely that means. Now, the oddity there is, as I mentioned previously, Lochner was decided under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The litigation on, about Obamacare is almost entirely about the scope of the Federal Commerce Clause, completely different part of the Constitution, completely separate doctrine. So why is it that Obamacare raises the specter of Lochner with so many commenters? We'll get back to those mysteries as we go along, but meanwhile, let's talk about some of the myths that have developed about Lochner over the years. One very prominent myth is that the court was trying to enforce a laissez-faire system on the United States through its liberty of contract decisions. Now, I understand there are some in the audience who would think that would have been a great thing, but it doesn't happen to be true. Uh, just to take one obvious example, I could go through all sorts of statistics and data about this, but I think this one will suffice. There were about six cases decided during the so-called Lochner era that involved, the, that involved laws that restricted the maximum hours of work including Lochner. Lochner was decided five to four and invalidated the law in question. Every other maximum hours law that came before the Supreme Court was upheld by the Supreme Court. And there, we could talk about, if in the question and answer period, why Lochner might have been different. One reason I'll throw out to you is that unlike most of those laws, Lochner actually provided criminal penalties. So if you let your worker work for 10 hours and 15 minutes, you could go to jail for that. And that probably struck some of the justices as draconian. But be that as it may, if the court was trying to enforce laissez-faire, it was doing a pretty poor job of it, given that it upheld almost every maximum hours law other than Lochner that came before it. Another myth is that the whole idea that the Due Process Clause protects substantive rights at all originated in the Dred Scott case, Dred Scott v. Stanford, the famous pro-slavery case from right before the Civil War. Robert Bork, for example, in The Tempting of America, says that Scott marked, quote, the first appearance in American constitutional law of the concept of what later became known as substantive due process. Now, that's just historically wildly inaccurate. First of all, the Supreme Court itself had recognized albeit in dicta in the case five years before Dred Scott, that the Due Process Clause protects substantive rights. Secondly, there are a whole series of state Supreme Court and, and lower court cases, for that matter, that recognized such an interpretation of due process. More importantly, the whole point of this rhetorical tool, trick, whatever you want to call it, used by Bork and others, is to try to associate substantive due process with slavery, and thus with a horrible moral evil, and to suggest that uh, there was some, some sort of original sin with regard to substantive due process. In fact, if you look historically, it wasn't primarily the pro-slavery forces who were arguing in favor of a substantive interpretation of the Due Process Clause. It was the abolitionists. The abolitionists argued that slavery in the federal territories was unconstitutional because it took the liberty of slaves without due process of law. You couldn't do anything about state-level slavery because the states were not subject to the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause, and we didn't have a 14th Amendment yet. But the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause protected the rights of slaves. As late as 1860, even after Dred Scott, the Republican Party platform of 1860 stated that slavery in federal territories violates the due process laws of slaves, substantive due process. 
Another myth you may have heard of is that Lochner was a product of judicial formalism, that the court, while maybe well-intentioned, ignored the social and economic conditions facing bakers and other workers in favor of abstract notions of natural rights and liberty of contract. The really odd thing about this criticism of Lochner, and the criticism goes back to 1908 in an article by Roscoe Pound, is that if you read the Lochner opinion carefully, the opinion itself rebuts that particular criticism. Justice Peckham specifically says, quote, in looking through statistics regarding all trades and occupations, it may be true that the trade of Baker does not appear to be as healthy as some other trades and is also vastly more healthy than others. So you could, you could accuse him of a lot of things, but you can't accuse him of ignoring ignoring the statistics when he, and, and the social science data when he explicitly references it. And while some scholars have seemed to think that he was making it up uh, when he said that, if you read Lochner's brief, which I have, the data is right there. There's an appendix that cites it. And it turns out that baking wasn't, in fact, any more unhealthful than many other professions, like being a law clerk and other seemingly innocuous uh, professions. And uh, the data was right there. Yet another myth that many of us are familiar with is that the Lochner court was indulging in social Darwinism, that they wanted to help the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor and helpless because that's what they thought would be sound evolutionary strategy. But in fact, there's not only no evidence for this beyond a misinterpretation of the Herbert Spencer line that Roger mentioned. Again, I could talk about that more uh, later if anyone's interested. But in fact, historians, I think, have shown pretty conclusively that if there was any social Darwinist on the Supreme Court in 1905, it was Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who, of course, is best known for dissenting in that case. One reason, another myth, and one major reason why liberals have been so hostile to Lochner over the years is that there's been a consistent view that by invalidating labor regulations, the Supreme Court was illustrating its hostility to workers and beneficence towards large corporations. And again, one could go through a large discussion of various cases and all sorts of data about the cases, but let's just look at the example of Lochner itself, given that this is the major, you know, the primary example that people use. In Lochner, it's true that the Baker's Union supported the 10-hour law issue, but it's also true that the large corporate bakery supported the law. There was no conflict between the large corporations and the workers who were supporting the law. They both wanted the law, and they wanted the law at the expense of small immigrant-owned bakeries owned generally by Jewish and Italian bakers uh, because those bakeries worked in, tended to be located in the basements of tenement buildings where they had one big oven and they couldn't work in shifts. They would basically be on call for many hours during the day. They would say, they would say knead the bread, and while they're waiting for it to rise, they would take a rest to the next room. Then they put the bread in the oven, and while the bread was baking, they'd take a rest and so on. They'd be on call for 14, 16 hours a day. The big corporate bakeries already were employing their workers for 10 hours or less, and they were perfectly happy to have the law. So rather than there being a conflict between the large corporations and the workers, it was actually sort of a conspiracy between the bakery union and their employers against other non-union bakeries. Uh, there was also an element of ethnic prejudice involved in that these new Jewish and Italian immigrants were less popular than the older, more established German immigrants who populate the bakers union. So for example, the New York State factory inspector said that uh, it was a good thing that the Jewish and Italian bakeries were being closed down by this law because, quote, cleanliness and tidiness are entirely foreign to these people. And uh, this is a slide of my immigrant 
Jewish uh, great grandparents who look quite who look quite clean and tidy. Thank you. <laughs> and you could keep the. Uh, the lights down because we're going to the slideshow in a minute. Uh, beyond these specific myths, there's a more general mythology that posits that the justices who supported liberty of contract were evil reactionaries who influ whose influence on American law has been expunged uh, and instead we have adopted the progressive view of law which shifted from a focus on property rights and contract rights to a focus on civil liberties and civil rights as it should be according to the story. But in fact, the progressive opponents of liberty of contract evince little interest in civil rights and civil liberties, and it was the Lochner line of cases that pioneered protections of the rights of African Americans, the rights of women, and the rights uh, to such civil liberties as to the right to send your child to uh, private school if you so desired. Progressive commentators typically opposed all of these decisions. The only area in which they were even arguably more sympathetic to individual rights than their conservative quote-unquote opponents was freedom of speech. So in fact, the progressives did win partial victory in that the modern Supreme Court does not seriously review economic regulations anymore. But the modern focus on protection of individual rights against the government is really a legacy of the Lockton rights, and this is best illustrated with a few slides. So for example, who criticized the Bill of Rights for turning the United States into a monarchy of law at the expense of the people? Was it Herbert Spencer of Mr. Herbert Spencer's Social Statics? Or was it progressive writer Herbert Crowley, who you may know as the founder of the New Republic magazine? He was also perhaps the most influential progressive intellectual of the early 20th century, and he was very good friends with Learned Hand, Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, and other leading progressive jurists. And the answer is Herbert Crowley. And note that this is not talking about liberty of contract. This is not talking about the due process clause. This is the Bill of Rights. Crowley thought the Bill of Rights was illegitimate because counter-majoritarian. Who wrote that the due process clause protects the right to acquire useful knowledge, to marry, to establish a home and bring up children, and to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience? This is language from Meyer versus Nebraska. Was it Judge Learned Hand, the great progressive judge, or was it Justice James McReynolds, perhaps known historically as the most reactionary of the uh, so-called four horsemen of reaction uh, that were the villains of the New Deal period? Uh, and the answer is Justice James McReynolds, Learned Hand, uh, and Felix Frankfurter corresponded with each other how they both thought this opinion was so terrible uh, that you should, that if the state governments or cities want to stop kids from learning German or other foreign languages, they should have the right to do so. And of course, the progressive hero, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, dissented in this case as well. You're probably all at least vaguely familiar with the infamous case of Buck v. Bell which uh, contained the line by Oliver Wendell Holmes, three generations of imbeciles are enough, upholding the uh, mandatory eugenics laws that were in vogue in the 1920s. But who dissented in Buck v. Bell? Was it the great civil libertarian Louis Brandeis, or was it yet another of our four horsemen of reaction, Justice Pierce Butler? Uh, and the answer here is not only did Brandeis join seven of his colleagues in the majority opinion, some we know joined reluctantly from correspondence we have, Brandeis was an enthusiastic supporter of this opinion, and we know he was because a year later he wrote another opinion in which he cited several cases as examples of great progressive trends in the law, and he cited Buck v. Bell as one of them. Pierce Butler was probably the most libertarian justice on the court at the time, as witnessed 
for example, by his Fourth Amendment opinions in prohibition cases, and he was also a religious Catholic. He didn't write an opinion in Buck v. Bell. He dissented without opinion, so we don't know his exact reasoning, but we could assume that some combination of his Catholicism and his libertarianism led him to recoil at the idea of mandatory sterilization of alleged defectives. Who drafted a dissent in Buchanan versus Worley, arguing that surrogation laws were inherently reasonable. Buchanan, by the way, is one of the great neglected Supreme Court cases of all time. It was a, there were surrogation laws uh, requiring blacks and whites to live separately being passed all over the South and in the border states. And the Supreme Court invalidated them in 1917. The case doesn't get much attention because it's considered only a property rights or only a due process case and therefore irrelevant to the development of civil rights in the United States. Uh, that's a, a bad interpretation because the court for the first time specifically said that prejudice against African Americans basically is not a valid police power reason for having segregation laws. In any event, it wasn't James McReynolds who was in fact uh, not exactly friendly towards African Americans uh, in a variety of ways, but it was Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes who drafted this dissent and said basically all segregation laws are presumptively reasonable. But even more important, if you read the law review commentary written by progressive scholars at the time, and I've read it, Every single progressive commentator, with the exception of one student at Yale Law School who supported this opinion, said that Buchanan versus War Warley was incorrectly decided. How dare the Supreme Court interfere with the wisdom of the experts and of the legislature, which thinks the segregation laws are a good idea? Who wrote that semi-employable women should accept the status of a defective segregated for special treatment as a dependent of the state? We have as our choices progressive future justice Felix Frankfurter or uh, the, the third of the four horsemen. I think only three of them actually appear in my slides. Uh, sorry, uh, Justice Van Devanter. Uh, justice uh, George Sutherland. Well, in fact, uh, as you've probably caught on to the, the trend here by now, it was Felix Frankfurter. Frankfurter also wrote an opinion when he was a justice upholding a law that banned women from becoming bartenders, in which he said that it's so ridiculous to even raise this issue that we don't have to make any particular argument as to why it's constitutional. Uh, the argument was that this would protect women's morality, although it wasn't really clear why women were allowed to be barmaids uh, and uh, cocktail waitresses, but not to become bartenders. There is an answer to that. The all-male bartenders union didn't want the competition. <laughs> Uh, George Sutherland, by contrast, was a very strong supporter of women's rights. As a senator from Utah, he introduced the Equal Rights Amendment into, uh, sorry, he introduced the 19th Amendment guaranteeing women the right to vote into the Senate. He helped draft the Equal Rights Amendment, and his opinion in Adkins versus Children's Hospital in 1923 in validating a women-only minimum wage law is perhaps the most egalitarian uh, opinion with regard to the rights of women that was written in by a Supreme Court justice until the 1970s. So, uh, and I don't have the slide here, but another thing worth pointing out is that Justice Louis Brandeis, again, supposedly the great civil libertarian, opposed uh, the, not only using the due process clause for anything in particular, but the equal protection clause as well, and told Felix Frankfurt he'd like to see the entire 14th Amendment repealed. So this doesn't really fit in with the standard history uh, where the progressives are the enlightened good guys and the forces supporting liberty of contract or the evil reactionaries. But, so the question is, how did this come about? Well, well my, my understanding of it is basically after World War II, you had a situation 
in which the Supreme Court during two great national emergencies, the Great Depression and World War II, had overturned a large number of doctrines that had limited the power of state and federal government, not just the due process clause and liberty of contract, but the non-delegation doctrine, the commerce clause, the general welfare clause, the contract clause, and so forth and so on. And then academics in the 50s, uh, when things had calmed down, had two choices. They could have either revisited these opinions and said, hey, the emergency is over. Is there some things we'd like to rethink? Let's go doctrine by doctrine and see what we're doing. Or they could just say, well, academia is overwhelmingly liberal. The judges are all democratic appointees. Let's just write off all the old jurisprudence as just bad reactionary stuff, and we don't have to take it seriously at all. It's all, so if you take that perspective, which is what they did, that doesn't really matter whether you're talking about liberty of contract or the Commerce Clause or the non-delegation doctrine or so forth and so on. It's all the federal courts getting involved in issues they should stay away from. It's all just whatever. And it turned out that Lochner became the emblematic symbol of all of this. It's all just Lochner. It doesn't matter what doctrine you're talking about. It's all just Lochner. So if you want to understand, as I, suggest, as I discussed at the beginning of my paper talk, I should say, why, when we talk about Obamacare and the Commerce Clause, somehow Lochner comes up. This is why. Because for the last 50 some odd years, the liberal position about these things has been, and it doesn't matter what doctrine you're talking about, that none of these doctrines made any sense. They were all just a smokescreen for the willingness of the federal judiciary to overturn popular will and the popular need and the, and the societal need to regulate the economy in favor of laissez-faire and big business and so forth. So you could call it Lochner, you could call it Commerce Clause, you could call it non-delegation doctrines, all one and the same, just call it all Lochner. Now, initially, they really focused the, uh, the liberals, that is, on the idea of counter-majoritarianism, that we need to allow democracy to respond to changing needs of society. But that became a lot less popular among liberals once they got control of the courts and they start to invalidate things that they thought violated individual rights. So once you have Brown versus Board of Education and Griswold versus Connecticut and the redistricting cases that overturned the, redistricting, the districting policies of every state in the country, and especially Roe v. Wade, saying that, that counter-majoritarianism is bad doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite do it anymore, so they instead just focused on the courts should stay out of economic policy. But that doesn't mean that the old progressive ideology of judicial restraint and all matters died. Uh, the people who supported it were literally dying out. Learned Hand gave a speech in 1958 at Harvard where he shocked liberal academia by saying that Brown was wrongly decided, the court's First Amendment cases supporting communists were, rights were wrongly decided, and that the 14th Amendment should not incorporate any of the Bill of Rights. He said it's all the same as liberty of contract, but he was 88 years old then. And, so, and his fellow progressives were also on their way out, uh, the old progressives, but who adopted their old progressive ideology, modern conservatives. They knew that there was no chance, given the demographics of the intellectual class, that we were going to go back to pre-New Deal jurisprudence. So they gave up on that, and they just said, you know what, from now on, we will hit the liberals over the head with what hypocrites they're being. For the last 50 years, since Lochner or so was decided, they've been arguing that the judges should stay out of all this. And, and now they're getting involved in all these public policy issues. We're going to show what hypocrites they are. We're going to adopt the old progressive view. Uh, I don't think they persuaded a single liberal to change their mind, by the way, with this strategy, but they nevertheless persist in it. Uh, and the end result, as my friend Randy Barnett of Georgetown likes to say, is that modern 14th Amendment jurisprudence has been a debate between the old progressives, represented by conservatives like Bork, 
and Scalia, and the new progressives, i.e. modern liberals. Now, uh, what's missing here is not only a traditional conservative view of the judiciary standing athwart the possibility of uh, demagogic politicians and the mob uh, doing bad things, but also any semblance of concern over the whether the history that supports all of this is accurate or not. And then, so then you might say, but Professor Bernstein, who cares about whether the history is accurate? We all know what Lochner stands for in constitutional discourse. Conservatives use it to attack due process opinions they don't like, like Roe v. Wade and Lawrence versus Texas, and liberals use it, as you said already, to attack the Commerce Clause opinions if the court tries to cut back on the Commerce Clause or on the Takings Clause or whatnot. So we all know that it serves as a useful heuristic. Why bother? Well, there's two basic reasons. One reason is that one has to believe if one's a legal historian that there's some value to actually getting at the truth of the legal history. If not, we could all resign our academic positions and just sign up to write novels and call them history. All right, we could all just make up stuff. Some of us do, but you know, we try, yeah, for those of us who try to be respectful scholars. But that's my legal history hat. What about my constitutional law hat? If, you put, if I put my constitutional law hat on, the problem with the myth involving Lochner, is that Lochner has become uh, a debate stopper. You lie debate by raising Lochner. The other side is doing something you don't like. You say, well, that's just like Lochner. The other side says, no, you're like Lochner. You have opinions where each side accuses the other of being Lochner. So instead of debating, what should be the proper scope of the Commerce Clause? Is it within the police power for the government to regulate private homosexual activity? Everyone just tosses Lochner at each other. I'd like to see the equivalent uh, of the, the rule that says you're not allowed to uh, raise Nazis on uh, internet comments. Uh, Right, that because that just ends debate. We should have a rule like that for Lochner. Whoever raises Lochner in constitutional debate loses because instead of elucidating things, it just tends to, co to cover up debate and uh, lead to sort of childish uh, rhetorical matches as to who could show the other's views or somehow, somehow related to Lochner. So I think that if we had a more accurate history of the Lochner case, we would have a much... Um, better debate in constitutional law. It would be a debate more about substance than about uh, bad views, than about our bad interpretations of history. So we could, in fact, debate what is the proper meaning of the Commerce Clause, what it, should we look at originalism, what effect does precedent have on the original meaning, uh, what what is the role of uh, the changes in modern industrial society and constitutional interpretation? What about the role of natural rights? And so forth and so on, instead of throwing Lochner at each other as, for example, uh, Scalia did in Lawrence versus Texas, uh, there's no more right to engage in homosexual sex, he said, than there is to um, work more than 60 hours in a bakery, or as the liberal justices do in cases uh, like um, takings cases, Commerce Clause cases, uh, the First Amendment cases involving campaign financing and whatnot. So I think we could have a better, more interesting, more productive constitutional debate if we rehabilitate Locker in the sense of treating it like a normal constitutional case that may or may not have been wrongly decided, but certainly isn't the evil caricature that's been made out to be. And I think that's reason enough to rehabilitate Lochner. Thank you. Well, thank you, David, for that spirited defense of Lochner. We're now going to hear um, a defense of the um, benighted progressives uh, from both left and right, respectively. Um, we'll start with uh, Lewis Michael Seidman, 
Mike is a regular foil here at the Cato Institute. He's very generous with his time for us, and he keeps coming back, which uh, I give him great credit for. He is the uh, Carmack uh, Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law at the Georgetown Law Center. He's a graduate of the college at the University of Chicago and of the Harvard Law School. Uh, after graduating from Harvard uh, in 1971, he served as a law clerk for J. Skelly Wright on the D.C. Circuit and then uh, moved to the uh, Supreme Court where he clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall. He then served on the staff as a staff attorney for the D.C. Public Defender Service until joining the uh, Law Center faculty in 1976. He teaches a variety of courses in the fields of constitutional and criminal law, He's the co-author of a constitutional law case book and the author of many articles concerning criminal justice and constitutional law. His most recent books are Silence and Freedom, published by Stanford in 2007, Our Unsettled Constitution, A New Defense of Constitutionalism and Judicial Review, published by the Yale University Press in 2001, and Equal Protection of the Law, published by the Foundation Press in 2002. Please welcome Mike Seidman. Thank you, Roger, and thank you for coming. Um, I just love to be kicked around by you people, so I'm glad to be here. Not as much as we love it. But. <laughs> um, it's customary in events like this to begin by uh, praising the book, and I have no trouble complying with the custom in this case. I'm, I'm afraid I don't have any fancy slides, but not to be outdone. I have my rehabilitating Lochner t-shirt here, just, just to prove uh, uh, how much I like the book. Um, so, Justice David says in his fine book, uh, the story of Lochner is more complicated than it's often supposed to be, and the politics and motives of the progressives who opposed Lochner are more questionable than they're often supposed to, uh, supposed to be. Uh, I have some quibbles and semi-quibbles about some of David's claims. Uh, I think, for example, that David understates the role that heirs of the progressives played uh, in the struggle for civil rights and the extent to which racism in the early 20th century infected conservative as well as progressive thought. Uh, the truth of the matter is there was enough racism to go around uh, then and now, um, and almost certainly the most virulent uh, racist and anti-Semite uh, to sit on the court in the last hundred years, maybe ever, uh, was James McReynolds, who was also, as David says, perhaps the most conservative of the so-called four horsemen of reaction. Um, in contrast, during the period that uh, David is talking about, the NAACP was founded by people on the left. Uh, it's sometimes forgotten that for years, the strongest white defenders of the rights of blacks in the South uh, were members of the American Communist Party. Uh, people like Earl Warren, Hugo Black, William O. Douglas, and Felix Frankfurter, uh, who were responsible for Brown, were all heirs, heirs of the progressive movement or progressives themselves. Martin Luther King was a socialist who believed that capitalism was doomed. Um, I also think that David somewhat understates the tension between 
a strand of Lochnerian thought and Brown, he didn't go into this in his oral remarks, but it's in his book, um, the great innovation of Brown was to reject formal equality. Um, after all, blacks were prohibited from going to school with whites, but whites were also prohibited from going to school with blacks, and that is a problem for believers in formal equality. Um, in order to get around that problem, Chief Justice Warren emphasized the effect of the law. He said segregation affected the hearts and minds of black children in a way unlikely ever to be undone. Lochner, uh, in contrast, emphasized that both employer and employee had formal liberty of contract without investigating to the, the extent to which the formal liberty constituted real freedom. Um, moreover, David ignores um, altogether the fact that the real breakthrough in civil rights in my lifetime um, was the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and in particular the public accommodations and employment discrimination sections of the act, both of which were in direct conflict with freedom of contract notions and were opposed by free market conservatives at the time for just that reason. One of the main opponents um, um, of the 64 Act was Barry Goldwater, and that was why he was opposed. That said, though, uh, these points don't diminish David's main argument that strands of free market ideology were also useful in the struggle for black equality, and he's right to point to the casual and not-so-casual racism that was a commonplace among many progressives. Uh, he's also right, I think, to connect Lochner to at least a version of the modern civil liberties revolution. And he's right that the redistributive effect of much progressive reform, including probably the law at stake in Lochner, is at best contestable. Um, it, would be it would not be customary for me at this point to sit down without criticizing the book. And I'm not one to break with custom. I'm a good conservative. Um, so here is the criticism. Um, actually, my main complaint is not really about anything David says in the book itself, but about the title that he's given the book. The title is Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform. Uh, as support for my criticism, I want to cite maybe the most perceptive and interesting uh, student of Lochner of our generation. Uh, that would be none other than David E. Bernstein. Um, and uh, here's what David says on page six of his book. And I'm quoting now. Uh, Even the soundest history cannot provide a theory of constitutional interpretation, nor can it dictate one's understanding of the proper role of the judiciary in the American constitutional system. History alone cannot tell us, therefore, whether Lochner was correctly decided, whether liberty of contract jurisprudence more generally was based on a sound theory of judicial review and constitutional interpretation, and whether Lochner and other cases protecting economic rights should be revived. I do not, therefore, reach any conclusions on these issues, but leave it to interested readers to apply the history presented here to their own understandings of proper constitutional interpretation and construction. Just so. Um, that doesn't sound like rehabilitating Lochner to me, uh, since David has, as he's already said, left it to interested readers to form their own impressions of Lochner, and since I am for sure an interested reader, 
Uh, I'm going to devote most of uh, the rest of my brief remarks to a very short explanation of why um, I don't think Lochner can be rehabilitated. Um, before doing so, though, I want to make two preliminary comments. Um, first, I'm more than well aware that what I'm about to say is not going to sit well with this audience. Um, and so I want to thank you in advance for indulging <laughs> me and perhaps even taking seriously uh, ideas that to many of you will seem crazy or even worse. Um, second, uh, as David emphasized at the end of his remarks, he's a historian. And for him, it's very important what precisely the people who wrote Lochner meant by it, what they thought, and what they did. I'm not an historian, and I in no sense mean to denigrate the work of historians when I say that I'm much less interested in that question. Um, for me, what's relevant is not what Justice Peckham meant in 2005, but what Lochner has come to mean today, and the effect that this understanding, whether accurate or not, has on modern constitutional law. Um, I guess I want to insist that there are strands of the historical Lochner that have enough resemblance to this modern meeting to make the modern label Lochnerism more than merely fanciful. Um, but I don't want to defend the proposition that every aspect of the views I'm about to describe were attributable to the historical authors of Lochner. Um, the point I do want to defend is that those views are pernicious and that they are much too widely held today, including, I might say, by a fair number of people in this room. Okay, so what then is wrong with Lochner, or at least what's wrong with what Lochner has come to stand for? Um, here is a very short version. I'm happy to um, um, expand on, elaborate on this at more or less indefinite length if anybody is interested in my doing so. What's wrong with Lochner is that it unthinkingly and automatically equates freedom with actions taken in the private sphere. In other words, it ignores the extent to which private coercion makes our lives unfree. What's wrong with Lochner is that it assumes that the private sphere is really private and is not itself constituted by public decisions that allocate power and resources and that could be made differently. What's wrong with Lochner is that it starts with a baseline of private market allocations and takes departures from those allocations as anomalous and requiring justification. What's wrong with Lochner is that it assumes that market allocations are just and that in a capitalist society, the rich deserve to be rich and the poor deserve to be poor. Precisely because I believe in the importance of private property, I think that Lochner's wrong. If pri private property is so important, and I think it is important, then people who don't have any should be given some. And people who, like me, have way too much, more than we can use, should be forced to give it up so that other people can have it. Um, that, in short, is why David's fine book doesn't rehabilitate Lochner. He's right about one thing, though. Just as he says, the power of Lochner over our law and political culture continues to this day. The most important political issue of our time is whether we can finally free ourselves from its pernicious grasp.
Thank you, Mike. Now tell us what you really think. <laughs> We're now going to hear from something completely different, I hope. And that is uh, from uh, Greg Maggs uh, at George Washington Law School. He is currently the interim dean there. He's professor of law and co-director of their National Security and U.S. Foreign Relations Law Program. Uh, he joined the law school faculty in 1993, became the senior associate dean for academic affairs in 2008, and in November of last year was named the interim dean. Uh, Greg teaches mainly in the areas of commercial law, constitutional law, contracts, and counterterrorism law, and he's written extensively on these subjects. Uh, he's a graduate of Harvard College and the Harvard Law School. Following law school, he clerked uh, for Judge um, Joseph T. Sneed of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and then for both Clarence Thomas and Anthony Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court. He's also taught for two years as an assistant professor at the University of Texas Law School. His other past experiences include service as a special master for the U.S. Supreme Court as a consultant to independent counsel Ken Starr in the Whitewater investigation and as an assistant to Robert H. Bork in private practice and research. He's a member of the advisory board of the Heritage Foundation Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a member of the American Law Institute. Uh, Professor Maggs has been an officer in the U.S. Army Reserve since 1990, and he serves from time to time as a military judge hearing appeals from courts martial. Please welcome Professor Gregory Maggs. Roger, thank you very much for that uh, kind invitation, uh, the kind introduction. Uh, thank you also for the invitation to speak here. I should mention. Uh, uh, that Roger has not had his biography read. Roger is a graduate of the George Washington University Law School. He's also a great friend of our law school. He speaks there about twice a year at least, uh, never shying from any debate that uh, we invite him to participate in. Roger, very thankful for that. Uh, uh, David is, is not only a close friend, but a person whose scholarship I follow closely. David, it was a delight to be able to read your book and to be invited to uh, speak on this. And uh, of course, Professor Saudbin uh, is one of the giants in constitutional law. A pleasure to be on the same podium as you. Um, I think I was invited here uh, because uh, I don't generally believe, in fact, I don't believe at all in the theory of substantive due process, certainly not substantive due process as informed by uh, natural law. And I thought uh, I'd be the conservative crank at this, uh, at this party. Um, you know, I must say that uh, when I uh, approached David's book, I had the wrong initial impression. I, from the title and from the cover, I, uh, you know, showing Peckham knocking Holmes down, I thought that uh, what David was going to be arguing for was uh, uh, that Lochner was correctly decided and that the Supreme Court should again be striking down all kinds of laws based on liberty of contract principles. Uh, but David's goals are actually uh, much more limited uh, than that. If, if you look in the book, um, particularly at the, uh, the conclusion, David writes, Alert readers will have noticed that I've titled this book Rehabilitating Lochner, as in improving Lochner's reputation, not defending Lochner or restoring Lochner. I argue that Lochner and liberty of contract jurisprudence more generally have been unfairly maligned and their cont contribution to modern American constitutional law neglected. In other words, the argument is not that uh, Lochner is correct, uh, but that it has been unfairly treated uh, in history. Uh, and although that was not what I expected from the book, uh, after having read the book, I think David has amply accomplished uh, that goal. Uh, and in fact, I think he's amply accomplished uh, many of the goals that he set out in the book. Uh, in the conclusion, he enumerates uh, five 
conclusions that he's to draw from these books. And I looked very carefully at these conclusions. Uh, and I must say, I think I agree with all of them, although I think I'd put a different spin on uh, some of them. I think really where I have the most disagreement uh, with David is his understanding or uh, characterization of the typical uh, conservative originalist uh, characterization of, uh, of Lochner. So that's really what I'd like to talk about. Let me talk first about David's uh, first uh, conclusion. Uh, his first conclusion is that the Supreme Court's liberty of contract decisions were well within the realm of plausible constitutional interpretation giving, given existing precedents and prevailing contemporaneous understandings of the meaning and the scope of the due process clause. You know, I think that's really correct. Uh, was Lochner uh, an unusual decision? Was it, would, would it come as a surprise that it came out the way it did? I really don't think so. Uh, the Supreme Court had decided in 1897 the case of Allgaier v. Louisiana, uh, which held that uh, Louisiana could, uh, could uh, not prevent someone from making an insurance contract, someone in Louisiana from making an insurance contract with someone uh, in New York. Uh, the Allgaier decision was replete with liberty of contract principles, uh, just like Lochner was eight years later. Indeed, in The Tempting of America, a book that uh, uh, David quoted, uh, Judge Bork wrote, it's hard to say why Lochner rather than Allgaier became the symbol of uh, judicial usurpation of power, because they were really the same case. Uh, I think the principles in Allgaier were not controversial. All eight of the justices in Lochner agreed that there was a liberty of contract that limited what states uh, could uh, impose on private uh, ordering. They just disagreed as to where to draw the line. Uh, on the other hand, David describes his uh, conclusion as modest. And I guess the question is, why does David describe this conclusion as modest? Well, again, I think perhaps the most important reason it's modest is that David doesn't say whether uh, the decision was correct or not. As, as uh, Professor Simon pointed out, he leaves that really to the, uh, to the reader to make with, of it what make of his history uh, what he or she wants based on uh, the reader's own constitutional interpretation. I think probably there's another reason that the, uh, the claim is a little bit modest, because I think if Lochner had come out the other way, it would still have been possible to say that the decision was uh, within the realm of plausible con uh, constitutional interpretation at the time. Uh, after all, it was a, a divided court, five to four. Um, although Algar was a decision that was cited by the majority and by the dissent, uh, there were other cases uh, that did come out the other way. In fact, not long before uh, Lochner, uh, Holden uh, v. Hardy had held, upheld a Utah statute uh, forbidding employment for more than eight hours uh, in mines as not being an unconstitutional in interference with the liberty of contract. Um, David's second conclusion uh, is that pro uh, by providing more room for civil society and markets and restricting coercive regulation, Supreme Court decisions protecting liberty of contract were likely a net positive from the standpoint of their practical effects. Well, I think that's what David's slideshow uh, was all about in terms of, well, you know, were the progressives really in favor of individual rights or weren't they? I think uh, perhaps the best example in David's book, or one of the best examples in David's book, uh, concerns the, the rampant sexism at the time of the decision. Uh, well, really throughout the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century, uh, restrictions on ability of women uh, uh, to engage in certain professions. And I think David correctly points out that liberty of contract, as uh, enforced by the Supreme Court, was generally a bulwark against uh, these sexist laws. That said, though, um, even if uh, liberty of contract was a net benefit, one might question whether uh, the uh, 
reliance on natural law from which uh, the protection of liberty of contract came uh, was a net benefit. Because if you read a lot of the decisions from those eras, actually not even that many of those decisions, uh, sexism seemed to be rooted uh, in natural law. Uh, David even quotes uh, Justice Bradley's concurrence in Bradwell, Bradwell v. State, a decision holding that a state could prevent women from becoming lawyers, uh, in which uh, the reasoning was man is or should be woman's protector and defender, the natural and proper timidity and delicacy which belongs to the female sex evidently unfits it for many of the occupations of civil life. The paramount destiny and mission of, of woman uh, are to, or women are to be fulfill the noble and benign offices of wife and mother. Well, if that's what natural law says, I'm not sure natural law, in fact, I'm sure natural law is not uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, source of something that's always helpful in terms of uh, protecting individual rights. A third uh, conclusion uh, that, that David uh, makes is that if the Supreme Court had been committed to a strong version of economic libertarianism, it would be more difficult to defend its decisions as either plausible interpretations of the due process clause or as having benign consequences. Well, I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a reasonable uh, conclusion. If you think Lochner was wrongly decided, I think you'd probably think that uh, something worse than Lochner would be even more wrongly decided. Um, I think David amply justifies that. Uh, his fourth point, one uh, that's really worth noting, which is that uh, Justice Harlan's dissent challenges many of the stereotypes about the justice uh, of the liberty of contract era. Justice Harlan, of course, uh, is viewed as being in dissent, being a great hero as against uh, the, uh, the reactionary views of Justice Peckham. But I think David points out correctly, and a, a point that's often forgotten, is that Justice Harlan completely agreed with this idea that there was a liberty of contract. Uh, he wrote, speaking uh, generally, the state in the exercise of its powers may not unduly interfere with the right of the citizen to enter into contracts that may be necessary and essential in the enjoyment of the inherent rights belonging to everyone. And he lists uh, employment and use of faculties and, and so forth. Really, the only thing that uh, separated Harlan from Peckham was uh, his view of how far uh, the police power extended and whether it was really justified in the case of bakers uh, to, in order to promote their health and safety. Um, uh, David mentioned that Peckham had cited statistics. Well, much of Harlan's uh, uh, dissent is simply citing uh, uh, statistics and uh, medical treatises uh, and others uh, simply saying, well, this really is a problem. It's not that there isn't a liberty of contract, but this is similar to the Mines case uh, and, and, and not uh, not an uh, uh, excessive use of the police powers. This leads to uh, David's final uh, conclusion, which is that the uh, principle established in the liberty of contract cases uh, that the police power is not infinitely elastic is a sound one, well-rooted in longstanding American principle. Well, I think that's right. Uh, I think that's uh, right. Um, you know, uh, as I understand the history, the court created uh, the uh, idea of a police power uh, in response uh, to its own creation of the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine. After having created the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine and suggesting that uh, there were certain things that states couldn't do uh, because Congress had uh, uh, the power to regulate commerce, uh, well, then the, the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine had to be tempered by creating police powers which sort of overcame this federal power. Well, I think the same thing is uh, and, and it was, of course, necessary because uh, it was necessary to temper those police powers because otherwise you wouldn't have the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine. Well, I think it's the, uh, uh, the same idea uh, is going on here, which is if you don't temper the police powers, well, naturally and logically it will get rid of the uh, freedom of contract uh, doctrine. You know, I think a, a more pertinent question, though, is, well, rather than 
creating and then limiting the police powers to temper and, uh, the uh, created dormant commerce clause power and the created liberty of contract right, why create any of this in the first place? Um, but again, that's my conservative crank coming out. Um, you know, I think, uh, as I said, I agree with David's uh, conclusions, putting my own little color commentary on them. Uh, but what I disagree with a little bit is David's characterization of the uh, conservative uh, originalist views of Lochner. Uh, and I think, you know, partly David had to write a balanced book, and I think it was important for him to, uh, uh, when he talked about Lochner being maligned, to uh, address uh, uh, criticisms of Lochner from both sides, especially unfair criticisms. I'm not really sure, though, I agree with the, the views he has uh, with respect to what is typical of the originalist and conservative uh, criticism. As I read the book, David has two main uh, criticisms of the conservative originalists. First, he says that uh, they overlooked the fact that the judges in the majority of Lochner were originalists. He says the irony of the conservative originalist critique of Lochner is, the is that the proponents of liberty of contract were themselves originalists, trying to adhere to what they saw as the constitutional understandings of the 14th Amendment's framers regarding individual liberty and scope of the police power. Now, David concedes that these judges uh, may not have gotten the original meaning correct. Uh, he says the, original, the originalism of a century ago was generally neither well theorized nor well explained by its judicial adherence, was far more intuitive and less grounded in historical research than modern originalism, and was much more likely to incorporate natural rights traditions, but it was originalism nevertheless. You know, I think, I think the modern conservative originalist response might be uh, to say to these originalist, early originalist judges, well, good for you for trying uh, to be originalist, uh, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to agree with your decisions. I mean, certainly the dissent in uh, District of Columbia v. Heller tried to be originalist, but that doesn't mean that all conservative originalists are going to agree with uh, the dissent uh, in Heller. Uh, David's other point seems to be that conservative originalists have gotten the good guys confused with the bad guys, and I think we saw a lot of that in the slides. He says the conservative originalists have ironically venerated Holmes and Frankfurter, and they've mistakenly uh, believed that the demise of liberty of contract, quote, marked a triumph of originalist thinking over living constitutionalism when the truth is almost exactly the opposite. You know, I agree with David that these views would be wrongheaded. I just don't really think that uh, they are the traditional views of the conservative or the typical views of the uh, conservative originalists. Um, I'm not sure Holmes is, uh, is venerated. If, in, again, if you look at uh, the tempting of America and you say, see what uh, Judge Bork had to say about uh, uh, Lochner, um, uh, Holmes doesn't venerate, uh, Bork doesn't venerate uh, any of them. Holmes didn't uh, agree with the liberty of contract doctrine, but he also thought that there were unwritten limitations on what states could do. He said that the law should stand unless it would, quote, infringe fundamental principles as they've been understood by traditions of our people. Bork therefore concluded, this is Bork saying this, so Holmes, after all, did accept substantive due process. He merely disagreed with Peckham and the majority about which principles were fundamental, nor did he explain why a free people could not decide to change or abandon principles supported by tradition, but not by the Constitution. There was no justice on the court who was not prepared to substitute his own opinions for those of elected representatives at some point. The difference was merely about when that point was reached. You know, so what then are the conservative views? I mean, if I say those aren't the conservative originalist views, what are the views? Well, I think they come down to two basic points. <coughs> uh, one point was uh, made, uh, it's been made by many people, made recently by Justice Thomas, 
uh, in his uh, separate opinion uh, in the McDonald case, um, which is that although the court has uh, applied the due process clause to protect substantive rights, including the freedom of contract, uh, it has done so without, quote, seriously arguing that the clause was originally understood to protect such rights. That's the conservative originalist critique of substantive due process. I think Judge Bork uh, made the other criticism. It's the uh, uh, criticism that, uh, or the other point that cons why conservatives cite Lochner, which is to say that, well, if you accept substantive due process in one case, you have to accept it in all cases. Uh, now, that may not have been persuasive to everybody. I like, uh, uh, I think uh, David said it hadn't persuaded anyone. I like Judge Bork's attempt to make people persuade persuaded because he relies on a great source of authority, one Judge Bork often quotes, and that's Lenin. He says, uh, Lenin is supposed to have written, who says A must say B. In that, he was logically correct. Who says Roe must say Lochner. This is vehemently denied by today's proponents of judicial policymaking, but the denial is hollow and merely means that they like the policies now being made. I think the views of Judge Bork and Justice Thomas are the views of the uh, modern conservative originalists, uh, that Lochner is, uh, is wrong uh, because it's not justified as an originalist decision. Uh, I think it's, uh, 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 and it is important to recognize that many other decisions uh, that go along with Lochner uh, that, that are decided on substantive, decision, uh, substantive due process grounds would also mean that Lochner was correctly decided. Um, that aside, though, uh, David, I must say you've written a fine book. Uh, I learned a lot from it. Uh, I liked all of your conclusions. I do put my own spin on it, but that's why you invited me here. Um, I think you've done much to rehabilitate the decision uh, in response to those who have maligned and mischaracterized the case. Uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Now we're going to have a res uh, response from uh, David, and then we're going to open it up to you folks for questions and answers. Uh, so, you know, really briefly, about the title, uh, I suppose you really need to read it as Rehabilitating Lochner. The justices of the court were uh, defending individual rights against progressive reform, uh, which would be too long for a subtitle. Indeed, I didn't want a subtitle. I thought just Rehabilitating Lochner was short and sweet and simple and sufficiently ambiguous that it might lead people to want to pick up the book to find out what this book's really about. But the publisher insisted on the subtitle, and that's... The, the lot, there were a lot of choices that were worse, let's put it that way. Uh, so we could, we could agree or disagree on that. Um, with regard to uh, Mike's comments, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, as a historical matter, uh, the, 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 the so-called second reconstruction, the modern civil rights era, was a product primarily of people on the left. I do want to just point out, on the other hand, uh, two little quibbles with what he said about this. The NAACP was founded not by progressives, period, but by a coalition of progressives uh, and classical liberals. So, for example, one of the founders of the NAACP was Oswald Garrison Villard, who was the editor of The Nation, and The Nation in 1905 wrote a very strong editorial supporting the Locker decision, just for example. Uh, the other quibble is that I have to disagree about a little bit about Brown, that the great um, innovation of Brown was that it rejected formal equality in favor of actual equality because, uh, yes, it's true that while well, blacks are going to all black schools and whites are going to all white schools, there's a certain form of equality. That's true, but that principle, and this is why I think one of the reasons I think that Buchanan versus Warley is such an unfairly neglected case, was already rejected, it strikes me, in Buchanan versus Warley. White people were not allowed to live on, on blocks where mostly blacks lived, and blacks weren't allowed to buy property on blocks where mostly white lives, and one of the arguments Kentucky made uh, in that case was, well, this is pure formal equality. It's not a problem. And the court said that um, 
basically when you when you have a fundamental what we now call a fundamental individual right a really important right like property involved we can't allow these kinds of form, these kinds of distinctions to take away people's rights and they focused on a due process issue but the they started with the concept this is a property right and the liberty of contract rights involved and then let's look at Kentucky's police power reasons well one reason they're saying is well look at these good police power reasons that we have we want to prevent interracial violence interracial marriage which was at the time considered you know a 90s, something that almost everyone was against at least almost all white people were against uh, the court said well those those are decent police power reasons, and there is formal equality here, but the right of property is too important uh, to allow those to overcome things. So the real innovation of Brown, strikes me at least, was to, move, was to say the 40th Amendment protects not only the sorts of rights that the framers of the 40th Amendment thought were especially important, i.e. contract and property and certain criminal procedure rights, but also things like the right to attend a public school. In the days before the, 19, before the New Deal, that would have been considered uh, mere social equality and thus not protected by the 14th Amendment. And you know, this is where originalists run into some problems because I think there's an argument to be made that this would have been indeed considered mere social equality, uh, and, you know, therefore, uh, there was an innovation there to say, well, hey, there are some things that we may not have thought were particularly important in the 1860s, but now that, A, we realize how important they are, and B, we recognize this is part of a more general caste system that we have to overcome, we, ha we can't just allow these things to go by the wayside. Uh, finally, with regard to Mike's uh, 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 Concluding remarks, I mean, he, Mike is a, a brilliant constitutional scholar. I say that quite, uh, whole, uh, quite, quite uh, sincerely, though I've learned a lot from. Uh, part of, uh, but, well, no, and this is not a but. This is just we all should be aware, however, that my, at one of the points of my book, it wasn't really the thesis or something I'm trying to persuade people, but one thing one might get out of the book is that if one is a traditional modern constitutional liberal of the Lawrence tribe or Earl Warren variety, one might say, well, one thing I've learned from this book is that my liberal ideas, which I had always thought were primarily from the progressives, actually are a synthesis of progressive ideas and classical liberal ideas. Mike, uh, you, know, you could correct me if my intellectual biography here is wrong, but you are to the left of modern liberals. You come out of the critical legal studies tradition, which uh, was which was in which was established to attack the liberal, you know, uh, a lot of the liberal suppositions of the intellectual elite of the 70s and 80s and whatnot. And therefore, of course, you're not going to be satisfied. So while some will say, "Oh, I could still have my nice liberal ideas," and now I recognize some more history, this isn't going to help you. You don't like those liberal ideas to begin with, regardless of their source. Uh, and therefore, it's it's not really going to persuade you to change your mind about anything. Um, with regard to Greg's comment, and I appreciate both of your praise, of course. I have uh, not too much to say about Greg's comments, of course. I will accept all of your, your praise uh, willingly uh, and wholeheartedly. Um, and the only thing I question, I mean, I'm not, and, you know, I think we could go back and forth on exactly what is the conservative critique of Lochner. I do think that, even, that we do see a lot of uh, conservatives, for example, trying to tie Lochner to Dred Scott, which is, a, which is ahistorical uh, and is purely a rhetorical move. The one quibble I have, it's not a quibble with your interpretation of Bork, because he did, in fact, I, I, I haven't gone back and looked, but I assume he did, in fact, say that Holmes was just as bad as the others. But if you think about the line that Bork was quoting from Holmes, that uh, to the effect that in Lochner he said that if all that if there's a law that all reasonable people would agree are against, is against our constitution, well, that would be unconstitutional. That ain't much of a test. 
Uh, assumedly, if a state, if two houses of a state legislature passed a law and the governor signed it, that is ipso facto proof that not all reasonable people think that this law is against our constitutional tradition, unless, of course, there's temporary mass hysteria or something like that. So uh, I don't think Holmes's test, if applied literally, would really leave all that much room uh, for the due process clause or anything else, for that matter, to be used to protect individual rights. So I think uh, Bork was being... Um, I don't know, not uh, a little bit uh, charitable or uncharitable in his, depending on how you look at it, in his view of Holmes, but I've certainly seen, I certainly remember from my law school days, if you would, maybe now that we have Scalia and Thomas and Bork and other judges, but certainly in my law school days, if you would ask conservative originalists, you know, who are the, well, who are the models, who are your role models, you know, Frankfurter uh, and Holmes and Learned Hand and other old progressives would certainly come up. Maybe they've been, maybe they're starting to get superseded by the current generation. All right. Thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. Now let's uh, take about 15 minutes to uh, get questions from you folks. Start with Clark Neely right there. Uh, please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have and to whom your question is directed. Thanks. This is very interesting. I enjoyed the book. Read it this weekend, David. Uh, Clark Neely from the Institute for Justice. Uh, I guess the question is probably primarily for Professor Maggs, but obviously anybody can feel free to chime in. Um, if, if everybody agrees, as it seems they do, that there should be limits or there are limits um, on the police power, in other words, there are some objectives that it is illegitimate for, for the government to try to pursue, um, what sense does a jurisprudence make in which the courts sometimes make a sincere effort to evaluate legislative objectives and sometimes make a completely insincere effort, uh, as they do under rational basis review? And, I mean, we see the court in many cases taking um, a really sincere effort to look at what's really going on. Pierce and Meyer come to mind. Um, the stated justifications were rejected, and they looked behind the veil of the stated justifications and said, no, these are an attempt essentially to make it easier to, to brainwash kids. So question being is, a, is a, a jurisprudence in which the courts only sometimes sincerely uh, evaluate legislative motive really a preferable one to what David seems to be proposing? Thanks. Well, I, I think that's a difficult question to answer because, I, uh, for one, I don't uh, think that David is proposing any specific type of jurisprudence in this case. Rather, he's trying to correct the history so that people who have different jurisprudential views can more accurately use that history uh, in debates uh, about their jurisprudence. I don't think that, um, I don't think that the uh, question also, from my own perspective, would have a, a single answer. Um, it would seem to me that you would have to look at the individual provisions that you're talking about and, uh, and look to see what the original meaning of those particular provisions are, such that when the statute says, Congress can pass no law, um, that's probably more strict than, you know, you can't engage in unreasonable searches and seizures. So I don't think that there's any kind of consistency across the board. I would look at the individual uh, provisions. Mike? Um, this is going to get us into a side argument that will leave David out. But, but I, I, I just cannot resist commenting on Professor Mag's statement that modern conservatives follow the original understanding and the original meaning or the original public meaning or, or anything like that. When you talk about myths, um, that is one of the greatest myths of, of, of modern law. And there were just many, many examples. So I, I, I'll just mention uh, uh, two of them with the understanding that I could mention many more. 
Um, there is no conservative justice who makes anything like an original meaning argument for the uh, 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 treatment of affirmative action. Uh, the original, the, 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 the uh, 14th Amendment says nothing about affirmative action. The framers of the 14th Amendment favored the 19th century conception of affirmative action. If you read the opinions of Justice Thomas and Roberts, what they say about affirmative action is that it violates their value judgments. Um, this is not original public meaning. If you read the Heller case, which uh, uh, you mentioned, uh, about half the case consists of what, what I have to say is a very tendentious examination of the original meaning of the Second Amendment. The other half of it consists of a whole series of ipsy-dixits about which um, uh, firearm laws are constitutional and which ones are not that have absolutely no grounding in the original understanding, and Justice Scalia doesn't pretend that they do. Um, I could, regulatory takings, campaign finance, there were just a million examples. The truth is what judicial conservatives do is they reach conservative outcomes. Uh, they don't uh, look at the original uh, meaning or understanding. All right, now for another, let's, uh, this gentleman right here, yes. Stephen, sure. I'm, I keep hearing this phrase spoken as though its meaning were clear to everyone. That's original intent. And my understanding of the concept, I'd like to hear someone talk exactly what this means because it's used as though it were, its meaning were clear when, in fact, the Constitution, my, way, the way I was taught, was a compromise of contra often contradictory original intents leading to a kind of textual ambiguity that led people whose views of whose intent was fundamentally different to think they had got the better of the day. And the other issue is there was one thing of the actual text of the Constitution, which may or may not be the same as this pure original intent or intents which may not have gotten into the text. So which ultimately uh, I want to hear uh, some discussion of this phrase, original intent, and which, when there is a contradiction between the actual text of the Constitution and what may be generally understood as original intent, which should prevail? This is a, a very a subject about which a word or two has been written over the years. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've written a fair amount about that uh, subject. Uh, Currently, among originalists, it is recognized that there is more than one original meaning. There's maybe the original intent of the people who framed the Constitution, the original understanding of the people who ratified the Constitution, uh, the original public meaning of the Constitution, what a reasonable person would think that the text uh, meant. And it is a debate that is as old as the Republic as to which one is best. Madison said, if you really want to know what the original meaning of the Constitution is, you don't look at uh, what the uh, framers intended or what the ratifiers may have thought, uh, or what the original meaning is, but you look at uh, what the ratifiers thought. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, there was disagreement among others who thought that uh, the key point is the original intent. I mean, that was the view of Ed Meese who, who expressed that view. Um, uh, others had adopted that. Currently, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, well, more Justice Scalia, uh, uh, agrees that it's the original public meaning. Uh, I recently wrote an article on, or a symposium piece, there was a debate about what 
Justice Thomas thinks is the correct original meaning. Now, I'll admit that once you open the door to say that there's more than one original meaning, there's certainly a lot of ambiguity. I think the cases in which there are actual disagreements that can easily be shown are small between the original intent, the original understanding, the original public meaning. But you're absolutely right that there are these different meanings. Uh, I think it is a subject of scholarly debate. And, you know, if, if, uh, if we got the original meaning wrong, just tell us. We'll, we'll look at it. I'll be happy to do that. Right. <laughs> just did. I just want to make a really small point about this related back to Lochner, which is that if you look, the, the one criticism, I mean, I don't think that my book is going to change a conservative originalist view of whether Lochner was correctly decided or not. But I do hope it takes away the rhetorical weapon of saying, well, the Lochnerites were not looking at the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment, and therefore they were really stupid or bad or engaging in judicial activism, whatever. The, there are a whole bunch of different versions of originalism, uh, and the version of original public meaning that has now become prevalent among conservative originalists, which involves looking clause by clause at the original public meaning of each clause without any consideration of the philosophical background of the provisions and so forth and so on, and with a lot of ambiguity about what you do with Preston and all that. Anyway, whatever, all that stuff is still being debated. That just didn't exist in 1905. Original public meaning was not a prevalent originalist theory, and therefore it's extremely anachronistic and unfair. to uh, You can attack the Lochner Court on a lot of grounds, but to attack them for not applying a theory which just really didn't exist uh, in the intellectual ether is a bit much. I'm going to weigh in on this because I want to make two points. First, uh, there is, uh, if there is f originalism and non-originalism. If you're not doing originalism, you're not doing constitutionalism. You're, you might as well be in a parliamentary system where whatever the parliament says goes as positive law. But if you're doing originalism, then you're left with the second point, and that is a continuum between at one end, the Constitution is clear in all of its particulars, which is clearly wrong, and at the other end, the Constitution is unclear in all of its particulars, which also is clearly wrong. And so you need to determine which particulars are more clear than others, and it turns out that there are good many parts of the Constitution that are relatively clear, or at least they had better be or we are, again, not doing constitutionalism. And so it will fall to the court to determine what this particular part of the Constitution means and then to apply it and then to leave it uh, to another day, perhaps, when we're dealing with an utterly unclear part of the Constitution. Mike, I'm sure you want to weigh in on that. I don't know why, because it was, seems to me to be perfectly perspicuous and unobjectionable. Well, I, 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 I do want to object to that, Roger, because oh. I, I, I just don't think uh, you can win an argument with a definition, right? So You've you got to start said, with a definition, excuse, though. Excuse me, Roger. You just said uh, if, you're, if you're not doing originalism, you're not doing constitutionalism. Well, for better or worse, there are many, many people in this country who are non-originalists who think they are doing constitutionalism. That's the now, problem. Now, hold, hold on. You may be right. You, excuse me. You may be right, and they may be wrong. But you cannot just simply assert that they're wrong without providing an argument for why they are. And I didn't hear an argument. Because this is only a forum in which you are allowed to speak for a minute or two. All right. I That's mean, you know, I'll give you a whole semester on the subject if you'd like. I Mike. may require some remedial education. <laughs> uh, Ilya? 
Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. I want to pick up on something that Greg said in his uh, initial remarks, and that is to ask about the relationship between Slaughterhouse and Lochner, because a lot of the kind of bad blood and consequent um, ill feeling toward Lochner is because of this um, empty vessel of substantive due process that's filled by you know, anyone who ever wants to fill it with whatever they like, uh, because uh, a more suitable vehicle, a more uh, textually faithful vehicle, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, was uh, eviscerated five years after the 14th Amendment was uh, ratified. So um, I'm, I guess another way to say, well, for David, you know, what is the relationship between Slaughterhouse and, uh, uh, and Lochner? And for, for Greg and, and Mike, uh, you know, wasn't the original sin really Slaughterhouse? And Lochner was just kind of trying to deal as best it could with what was left. That's a interesting question. Um, the traditional view is that the uh, Justice Field, Justice Bradley, who dissented in Slaughterhouse, lost, but the threads of Slaughterhouse were picked up and transformed into due process where they didn't belong. Uh, and part of that is that uh, legal history on the subject of the due process clause was really dominated by, for decades really, by the work of Edward Corwin, who of course was, uh, cue the, uh, the villainous music, uh, one of the leading progressives uh, of, uh, uh, of the time. Uh, and he basically said, well, the due process of law was clearly always procedural. And then there was one case, Weinahammer, or whatever the name of that case was, from 1958 in New York that said something about property rights. And the courts just abused that and whatever. But I think that more recent historical research by Jim Ely, and there's a lawyer who just wrote a piece for the, a very good piece for the Harvard Law Review, or Yale Law Journal, Yale Law Journal which uh, we'll see if it stands up to further scrutiny, that suggests that really the idea that due process of law was meant to, by the eight, by at least by 1868, was, was widely and almost universally really understood to protect substantive liberties uh, has because has come to be in vogue, and that's quite contrary to the traditional story. And while liberty, while the origins of liberty of contract per se are still a bit fuzzy, it's not at all clear to me that the history of the privileges or immunities clause is that much clearer as to what rights it was to protect and in what context that was meant to protect something like liberty of contract and the due process clause was. In short, I think the due process clause at least as of 1868, and the Privileges or Immunities Clause were both meant to protect some version of substantive rights against uh, arbitrary or otherwise illegitimate government action. Uh, and unfortunately, the framers uh, did not leave us with enough language uh, that was clear and what not to know exactly what those rights were. But I don't know that uh, really the Privileges or Immunities Clause is that much more help in that regard than due process. You know, I think I'm going the, the other way uh, on, on the privileged immunity clause. I think it was only a few years ago I sat in this chair and I was invited to be the conservative crank on the uh, anniversary of the Slaughterhouse case. Uh, you can always call on me, Roger. I'll, yeah, well, listen, and, you, uh, you, you know, you're just another one of those foils. Recently, I, I worked, uh, I did some uh, work on the uh, uh, McDonald v. City of Chicago uh, Second Amendment case as it applies to the states, and my views evolved as I saw the uh, are, are evolving as I see the additional evidence regarding the privileges or immunities clause. I think there's something more to it than I than I uh, had seen previously when I was here being a crack. Well, you ju just keep at it, uh, Greg, and then before long, you. Well, I'll be a member. Yes, on, Mike. My, my. On uh, uh, the due process clause, I I really agree with uh, David. 
um, I, I think that um, due process must have some substantive substrate uh, because if it didn't, uh, you could always uh, define substantive rights in a way that would prevent you from getting a hearing. And arguably, that's what happened in Lochner itself. So the yep. state just decided this was unsafe, and then you didn't get a hearing about whether it was unsafe. Um, this is a point that I think Justice Douglas made really forcefully in his much maligned, but I think great opinion in uh, Griswold. Um, so there he's talking about procedural rights like the right, for example, to get a warrant before your house is searched. And I take his argument to be, what is the point of saying that you have a, a right to get a warrant before your house is served, searched if the government can, in the first place, control everything that goes on in your house? Um, and I think he's right about that. I think David's right about it. I think the Lochner court was right about it. Uh, was it you, Greg, who said that it was Bork who said that who says um, who says Roe must say uh, Lochner? Yes. See, I, th there are a number of us who would disagree with that, who would say rather who says Griswold must say Lochner. Distinguishing Roe from Griswold is very different cases. Um, all right, let's take uh, Wally. Did you have a question? Well, Walter Olson from the Cato Institute. Uh, when I think of the harsh words that uh, Robert Bork in particular has had for Lochner so often, uh, the first thing that I think of is that this is the politics of the Yale Law School faculty, <laughs> and that um, if you show up and you look around to see if there are any conservatives, and the best you can do is Alex Bickle, uh, the, the, you know, you immediately form a faction with him, uh, even though he's not really very conservative. And <clears throat> so you argue from a Bickle-Frankfurter point of view because that can be respectably done at the Yale Law School. And the other thing that, I'm sorry to adopt such a totally psychological theory, it's not very respectful, but <laughs> the, um, the other thing, though, for, and, and here I remember from direct conversation with many conservative anti-Lochnerians, is that um, they will, uh, many of their views were formed during the period um, 60s, 70s, 80s, in which it was a major looming prospect that we would get substantive due process with affirmative economic rights in which the Constitution would be read to provide a right to a job and health care and housing and welfare and so forth. And I have been told more than once, uh, don't open this can of worms of going back to Lochner, or they will give us affirmative economic rights. Uh, do you think this we should be so lucky? Oh, I think I think there's a, a lot to that. Um, I mean, if you are Robert Bork, circa 1970, you are almost alone in academia, and you could spin out a very sophisticated historical jurisprudential, et cetera, theory of the 14th Amendment that would somehow distinguish Lochner from what's going on with regard to the potential of the right to a minimum income or whatnot. But that will take you years. It may not be persuasive to anybody. And it's much, uh, and, it's, and it's sort of pointless because you have no allies who are interested in anything like Lochner anyway. So it's uh, much um, simpler just to you know, the beginning before originalism was just, let's be against judicial activism. That's certainly not a conservative as such traditional ideology, but it was a useful thing to be against at the time. And I take seriously the fact that if Richard Nixon had gotten a few hundred thousand uh, fewer votes in a few uh, important states that instead of he appointing four justices to the Supreme Court, it would have been Hubert Humphrey. You may very well have had constitutional law go down roads that uh, only Mike in this room, I think, would probably ha have been happy with. So it's, it's, politically, it's not a 
you know, a silly thing to do. But again, if you're going to be a historian about it, one has to be honest about these things and say, well, that may have been a useful uh, political gambit at the time. But you know, the, the, but but now we, you know, but if we're doing sophisticated history, we have to acknowledge the truth. By the way, when people people have told me that people who knew Justice Souter when he was on the court said he really believed himself to be a conservative, and and they laughed about it. I said, no, in he has the views of a conservative at Harvard Law School in 1963. He just hasn't kept kept up with things. But you know, he has views very similar to the second Justice Harlan, who was the conservative justice on the court at the time. Well, of course, the answer to bad judging is not judicial abdication. It is, uh, and, and therefore legislative supremacy, it is better judging. We have reached the end of uh, the road. Oh, you want to make one more comment? Oh, I had a story following up on okay, Walton's good. Uh, psychology. We can end with a story, Judge yes. Bork, uh, in one of his books, Judge Bork uh, says that in uh, 1964, the Republican students at Yale came to him and asked him to participate in a debate against another Yale professor who was asserting that anybody who would support Goldwater was crazy. And um, Judge Bork says, well, I'm up for tenure. I don't really want to engage in this debate. Can't you find uh, anybody else? And they said, well, there's only one other professor at Yale who supports Goldwater. And Bork says, well, why can't you get him? And they said, because he is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's uh, have some wine and cheese. Uh, the book is available for sale at a discount outside, along with others of the books that I mentioned at the outset. And let's have a warm round of applause for our speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is that true?